Afternoon, everybody. Um, for those of you who don't know me, I'm Dillis Jones. I'm part of the leadership here in Holy Trinity. And it's a joy to be able to speak to you this morning. We're in our second week of our Lenten series. We've entitled it uh, Cross-Examination. And we're looking at the words that are spoken to or about Jesus from around the cross as he was being crucified. And these are words that are spoken by a variety of different people. And there are challenges, there are insults, there are pleas, declarations, and there are questions. And we've put together a little um, small booklet, a Lenten reflection booklet to accompany these talks. And I'd encourage you, thank you, love, thank you. I'd encourage you in your own time to reflect on the scriptures and the topics and to maybe revisit during the week what God is saying to you as you're listening to these talks or if you're listening to them by podcast. Um, this little booklet will help you maybe go back and spend a bit more time with Jesus thinking about what he's been saying. They're on the welcome desk on your way out if you want to pick one up. Excuse me. Um, I feel that this is quite an engaging and a tangible viewpoint from which to read the scriptures. How did Jesus feel as he heard these words said to him? What was in the hearts of the people as they spoke them out? And when I put myself in the place of the people speaking, to see myself and the drama playing out, I guess I wondered, would I, as a passerby, have hurled abuse? Would I or could I have been that cynical or that mean? And if I'd been one of Jesus' disciples at that time, would I have had the courage to stay with Mary and John at the cross? Or would I have gone into hiding for fear of being treated with the same vitriol that he was been treated with? And this week we're looking at a very short passage from Matthew 27. Last week, <clears throat> the insults that were thrown at Jesus came from random passers-by. This week we're looking at the words that came from the chief priests, the, the elders and the teachers of the law in the community. So we're going to read that briefly. In the same way, the chief priests the teachers of the law and the elders mocked him. He saved others, they said, but he can't save himself. He's the king of Israel. Let him come down now from the cross and we will believe him. He trusts in God. Let God rescue him now if he wants him. For he said, I am the son of God. These men that were saying these words, who hurled this abuse, who mocked Jesus, these men had probably heard Jesus preach many, many times in the synagogues, and they had seen and heard his miracles. They had um, heard the pronouncement that he was the Messiah. They may even have been in the temple when he proclaimed that he would raise the destroyed temple in three days. They lived in fear that this man would actually take their status and position from them. They thought him a blasphemer. They thought him a liar. And now they see him hanging 
They see him on the cross, and what they feel is justification. They feel justified that they have punished this political and religious radical. Um, they feel relieved that their own position as guardians of the Jewish faith is now safe. And I feel sorry for these men when I read these words. I feel sorry that these men who were so versed in the Scriptures, who knew the words of the prophets, and yet, because Jesus was so opposite to what they expected, and ultimately because of their own pride and their own fear, they couldn't recognize Him for who He was, and that was the promised rescuer of Israel. They couldn't see it for themselves. <clears throat> N.T. Wright describes what they were experiencing in his book, The Challenge for Jesus. And I just want to read this quote as he puts it much better than I do. <clears throat> it's a little long, but bear with me. It's also up on the screen. Jesus's redefined notion of messiahship corresponded to his whole kingdom proclamation in deed and word. It pointed on to a fulfillment of Israel's destiny, which no one had imagined or suspected. He came as the representative of the people of Yahweh to bring about the end of exile, the renewal of the covenant, the forgiveness of sins. He came to accomplish Israel's rescue, to bring God's justice to the world. But how was this to be done? One might expect, granted the pattern of other messianic and similar groups within Judaism, an agenda such as the following, that he should go to Jerusalem wage the war against the forces of evil, and be enthroned as God's Messiah, Israel's true king. There is a sense in which this is exactly what Jesus did, but it was not the sense that his followers expected. <clears throat> so we can see why these men were deeply disappointed in the notion of Jesus being the Messiah, and they refused to surrender to his teaching and refused to receive and be blessed by the love and the forgiveness that God longed to lavish on them through him. And so they mock him, they insult him, they test him, and they very question who he is. And that's the theme that we're focusing on today, is questioning God. As I read that scripture this week, I was really struck by how these words really mirrored uh, Satan's words to Jesus in the temptations in the desert, in his temptation specifically to, for, to Jesus to throw himself off the temple, and God would send his angels to save him. I could really hear the same vibe, if you like, coming through. And if only those chief priests, if only those elders knew who they were speaking for, and who they were being used by, how easily the enemy can deceive us. But Jesus' answer to the enemy is very interesting. During that temptation, he says in Matthew 4, 7, do not put the Lord God to the test. So that brought me to my own question of what is the difference between testing God and questioning God? Well, there's plenty of examples of both throughout the Bible, and from what I conclude, it comes down to one thing, and that is the state 
or the posture of our hearts before God. What's going on in our hearts as we ask questions? Do they come out as tests to him, or is it questioning? When we look through the Bible, there are so many who question God, and God actually makes himself known more clearly in response to questioning. Some examples are Moses, Abraham, Joshua, David, all of whom are described as heroes, heroes of the faith in Hebrews 11, all these people who questioned God. The Psalms are full of David's questions. How long, Lord? Why do you hide your face, Lord? Who's going to fight for us, Lord? And in Psalm 22, verse 1, we hear Jesus on the cross echo that question in his cry of desperation to his Father. Why have you forsaken me? Even Jesus is questioning his Father in that moment. God wants our honesty and our openness in his relationship with us. After all, he knows our very thoughts. Hiding anything from him is absolutely futile. He wants us to, to seek his wisdom, his guidance and understanding, and he welcomes our questions. We learn who he is by questioning what he does and learning to trust him. That's how we get to know him. The book of Habakkuk is a very concise three-chapter look at God being questioned, hearing him answer, and seeing Habakkuk's response unfold, and seeing God become known in a much deeper way. And to put the three chapters in a nutshell, Habakkuk is struggling to comprehend God's ways, which to him appear just completely unjust and unfathomable, and he lays his complaints before God. How long, O oh Lord, must I call for help, but you don't listen? How often do we feel that? Your eyes are too pure to look on evil. You cannot tolerate wrong. Why then do you tolerate the treacherous? We look around, don't we, and we go, why, God? Why do you allow all this stuff to happen? But God basically answers to say, trust me. He says, I know you don't like what I'm doing. I know you don't understand what I'm doing, but I am using this oppressor to bring about his own demise. And Habakkuk's response is one of a beautiful confession of faith. He learns to rest. He learns to trust in God's appointments and to wait in a spirit of worship. That's what comes out in his response. He says, though the olive crop fails and the fields produce no food, though there are no sheep in the pen and no cattle in the field, yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will be joyful in God my Savior. That's where he lands in his questioning. The questions from all these heroes of the faith were asked from a place of trust. They don't reflect unbelief. If we compare their questioning with the chief priests and the elders, I think we begin to see the difference between testing and questioning. 
When we're arguing and struggling with God, we need to be aware of the state of our hearts. Are we testing or are we questioning? Where is our heart? What are we asking out of? What are we questioning out of? And when our heart is leaning towards testing, I think we can fall into doubt. And a little doubt is okay. I think God can lead us to an even deeper experience of faith in our doubt. But if we harden our hearts and completely fall fully into doubt and we stay there, then we cannot trust God. We will stop believing that He will answer us and we will fail to recognize Him at all at work in our lives. So it's really important to constantly be aware of what's going on in here and where you are asking your questions from. It's displeasing to God when we stay in a place of doubt, when our heart is hardened and cynical rather than filled with faith and hope. In their state of doubt and lack of faith, Adam and Eve had to leave the Garden of Eden the Israelites couldn't enter the promised land. And in his doubt, Peter, that beautiful rock of faith, in his doubt, he sank below the waves as Jesus called him towards him. But even in his displeasure, as we read through the Bible and see the outworking in these people's lives, we see that God's response to us is always patience. And there is always an outworking of His will in those doubting lives that continue to seek after Him and His truth as best they can. He is always patient with us. And I think it's true for me, I'm sure it's true for most of you as well. When we question God, it's mostly when things don't go our way. It's mostly when things don't go the way that we expected when things in our lives, when outcomes in our lives are just, they seem too unfair or disappointing or too painful. And we see this <clears throat> looking at the example of the chief priests and looking at our own experiences. I'm sure we can all think of those times in our lives when we hit that place of it's just too much. It's not what I thought. And as I sat in that place this week, Isaiah 55, 8 to 9, immediately came to mind. For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are my ways your ways. This is God speaking to us. As the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. This is the lens this is the lens through which we safely question God. This is the posture we should have as we argue and wrestle with Him and seek His wisdom and guidance. And I just want to finish on this. <clears throat> Excuse me, I just need a bit of water. Mm. I feel that in our church community, we have always been very open to questions. We've always tried to have a culture where people's questions are welcomed. Questions around God and faith are welcomed. 
And part of that discourse, I think, is how we read and view the Bible. And it seems there, there are many different lenses and many different theologies out there through which the Bible is read. And I am not qualified to speak on such things. For that, I need Rob or Scott Evans. <laughs> but I will say this, whatever your theology, I encourage you to approach God's Word with reverence, with surrender, with humility, and with anticipation and expectation of His answers and His transformation. And I want to leave you with five questions that Tim Keller asks himself as he dwells on the Scriptures. And I think this framework, coupled with the lens of Isaiah 55, 8 to 9, will bring a richness and a depth to our relationship with God. And these questions are, how can I praise Him? How can I confess on the basis of this text that I'm reading? What wrongful behavior, harmful emotions, or false attitudes result in me when I forget the truth of what I'm reading? What should I be aspiring to on the basis of this text? And why is God telling me this today? Wrestling with God is part of our journey with Him. But let's make sure, let's make sure we are more like the heroes of faith than we are like the chief priests and the lawmakers and the elders on that day and do more questioning than testing. Yet I will rejoice in God my Savior. That's really what I want to leave you with today.